Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Kayla Mason. My name is Todd Hicksonball, a.k.a. The Todd Father. And we have a great episode for you today. Today we are talking with Sophronia Scott. And if you don't know Sophronia, she has written many different things. What has she written, Caleb? What has she written? She's written lots of um, fiction books. She's written nonfiction books. She's written um, memoirs as well. She's also written essays. In fact, one of her most famous essays is about her experience on the day of the Sandy Hook uh, shoot the Sandy Hook school shooting because her son was actually um, there. He he was in and, the school, and that's a crazy story. And you get into that a little bit in the episode. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, you weren't able to be a, a part of the interview, but it's still a good conversation and had Listen, lots of fun with it as well. I'm, I'm making moves over here. <laughs> I'm doing the thing. So we're gonna get to that conversation in just a moment, but we want to remind you in case you missed it last week, we released our look back on the month of May and reflected on all of the things that we learned from, from podcasts to books, to movies, to life lessons, and all just all sorts of stuff. And so if you're looking for something to learn from, we suggest going back to that episode and we'll give you a ton of recommendations there. Because well. it's dope. Also, we have another recommendation. We have our Learner's Corner Recommended Resource of the Week. Uh-oh. What's that, Caleb J. Mason? The thing that I am recommending today is I am recommending the book Ego is the Enemy. Who, who's that? Who wrote that? Ryan Holiday. You always and, are recommending his books. Well, that's because he's one of my favorite writers. He's pretty dope. It's absolutely, basically kind of the premise behind it is that ego um believe it or not ego is the enemy and it gets in the way of our success whether that be the success <coughs> that we're pursuing personally or organizationally <coughs> ego is what gets in the way of it and so i highly recommend this book um anything that ryan writes is incredible and so don't miss that and now as we mentioned earlier here is my conversation with Sophronia Scott. Well, Sophronia, we are so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you, Caleb. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. And we're excited to talk with you about your writing process and kind of um, some of the books and articles that you've written as well. But just as we were getting started, I just thought it'd be a fun way to just ask, what are, what are some of your favorite things that you've been reading recently, whether it be fiction or nonfiction or anything like that? Well, actually... I started watching the HBO series Gentleman Jack, mm-hmm. which and it's about this woman who lived in real life. Her name was Ann Lister, and she was a lesbian in the early 1800s who actually had a committed, um, um, sanctioned marriage to another woman. Mm-hmm. And I, when I found out, you know, to see her on the screen and to walk watch the way this character walked, like with utter confidence and positivity. I was like, wait, who is this woman? And when I found out she was number one, real, and number two, that the series is based on her actual diaries, that she was a noted diarist, then I was like, okay, I have to find out who this woman was. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just finished reading um, the the book on on the, the real Ann Lister. So it was, it was absolutely thrilling. And I was inspired by her because she is someone who own land at a time when women did not own land. She um, ran coal fields. She was just someone who knew what she wanted out of her life and went for it. 
So I, I just found that hugely inspiring. Mm-hmm. And then is the book called Gentleman Jack as well? Yes, it's called Gentleman Jack, The Real Ann Lister. Cool. Anything else that's been inspiring you for reading-wise? Uh, Phoebe Ferrick McHale has written a book that just came out called Putting Joy into Practice. And it's um, she lists seven ways um, to lift your spirit. And it's from the early church. And she's actually from the Coptic church. Um, Phoebe is Egyptian. And I was fascinated by that book as well, because she, she it's like she brought back to basics, just the simple idea that when bad things happen, you can come back to yourself. Mm-hmm. And there are very simple tools to, to help you do that and to reconnect with spirit again. So I, I found that book absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, if you think of anything others throughout our interview, feel free to drop them, drop them in too, because I'm always looking for uh, good reading recommendations in, in, uh, of any sort of genre. But as I had mentioned, I want to talk with you about your, your writing process as well. And so one of the things that I just wanted to ask you as we get started is, what are some of the things that you see that most writers or authors tend to underestimate whenever it comes to either writing a book or an article or just in writing in general? I, you know, I teach, of course. So mm-hmm. I think my students often get overwhelmed when they realize how long it can take to produce a strong manuscript, how much work it is. Because it, it really, you know, yeah, sometimes you can, you know, reel off a book if you have to under a deadline, but to really craft something that you can feel confident with, it takes time. And sometimes the more you learn about writing, the longer it takes because you understand what you're doing, you understand the options that you have available to you. And and that can, if you're not prepared for that, you can easily get overwhelmed with a project. And I, th- I think you have to come to it just like a, a, like a, a woodworker would. You, you, know, you don't see anyone get overwhelmed because, oh, this bookshelf is just too big and I can't build it, right? <laughs> or this, this hutch is too huge, I just can't finish this hutch. Um, but, but to have that kind of perseverance and confidence that you are creating something and it's going to take time to do it. Mm-hmm. The other thing, and I just made a, a video about this this morning, I feel that some writers don't have enough confidence in what they personally want to say as writers. And I, I mentioned this because one of my students, you know, in the MFA program, when you start off, uh, you write a lot from prompts and you're basically, you know, being told, you know, write about the body, write about nature, write about an observation. And as you move on, you are giving more leeway as to what you can write about. You can choose your own material. And uh, I've had students say to me that that's actually harder for them. And and I feel that that doesn't have to be the case. I feel that uh, you have to give yourself credit that you're writing for a reason, that you have things to say. And I'm I really feel that if a writer is saying that, I feel that they're not giving themselves permission that there must be something that they want to say. This is why they're doing this and that they just have this thing in their head that it's not good enough. It's nobody would care. or Why should I write about that? When really that's the place where you should go. Just jump in and write what is on your mind. Mm-hmm. So I have a couple of follow-up questions that I want to ask you about for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Back to things taking longer and writing taking longer than what you expect. 
how how long does it and again you're i mean you've been writing a long time as well too um how how long would you say um like how long does it take you usually to go okay i feel good about where a book is at from beginning to end just to kind of put it in perspective for people you know it, there's there's no set time frame because it's not like you you sit down and okay if i sit down every single day over the course of six months, I will have a book because mm-hmm. life doesn't happen that way. Right? I get interrupted. I have to, you know, you know, I just finished a book proposal and now I'll get to go back to working on this novel that I've been working on. So things get interrupted. Um, I wrote uh, This Child of Faith probably over the course of six or seven months. Right. So that was, you know, when I was only focusing on that project and, you know, had a deadline and you know, that's how long it took to write that book. Um, so it's hard to, to say exactly, but but I think the part of your question is important is how do you know when it's done, right? Mm-hmm. That's what you're really asking. Yeah. When do you know to let it go? And I can, you know, I don't know if I can articulate this, but I've always had a sense of, of when something is done. I know when I've taken it as far as I can take it, right? And then it's it's time for my agent to see it or it's time for an editor to see it. And sometimes even then, it's not really done because my agent will see something or my editor will say, you know, why don't you do this? Or why don't you add a chapter on this? Or take that out, you know, or, you know, did you really mean to do this? And and suddenly it's like, oh, yeah. And, and that's an idea that I can pursue. It's like, okay, I didn't even think about that. And so then it's not really done, is it? Because I'm going to go back into it. <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm. So you have to hold that that done, that D-O-N-E done. You have to hold that really loosely because even in the publishing process, uh, you know, you're still going to read through that manuscript a zillion more times. Your editor is going to look at it for developmental purposes. The copy editor is going to have questions. There's always going to be something that you're looking at. Now, of course, you're not going to, you know, late in the process, you're not going to go in and say, oh, I'm going to add another character and you can't do that at that point. But but you really do have to understand that that the manuscript is in flux until it reaches a certain point in the publishing process. Mm-hmm. So then you also mentioned about um, about writing and finding out what you're going to write about. And yeah. that and I've, I've seen the same thing with people as well as struggling. Well, I don't feel like I have anything to say. How did you go about figuring out what you had to say? You know, that's a good question, Caleb, because... I felt, you know, I when I started out as a journalist, um, I went right out of college to to Time Magazine, and I spent 15 years in that company, and I felt like a lot of the time, once I understood what I was doing as a writer, uh, that next step was figuring out what I had to say, and I would experiment with essays. Uh, some of it had to do with what I was writing in my journals. Uh, it was gaining the confidence of, you know, do I have an idea that I can carry through for 300 pages? And and that took a lot of time uh, before I got to that idea for my first novel and said, okay, this is something I can do. Now, since then, I've learned a lot more about working with ideas, and some of it has been totally by accident. Um, I used to write a, a newsletter, a regular newsletter that I wrote every week. And it occurred to me that just in writing that newsletter, that that I was saying kind of the the same thing. I realized there was a certain theme 
around empowering writers. And I realized, ah, that must be a thing, right? That must be a thing that I have. And I would not have come to that if I didn't realize that, that this is the thing I was talking about all the time. Um, likewise, with, um, with writing about my son, which is something I, I never expected to do, that, that, um, that I just had certain observations about him uh, when, from when he was very young, that I realized uh, that it might help other mothers if I, if I put my experience on paper. So it's, it's an observation process, really. It's really to pay attention to um, what I was thinking about, what kept coming up for me, and then realizing that, oh, I, c- I can write that down. That, that's, that could be something. Mm-hmm. Why do you feel like so many people feel like they don't have anything to say? Because I'm sure that you've even seen it in, in your classes as well of just either patterns of excuses or beliefs and anything like that. Yeah, they, they think that like, nobody will care or they think it's already been said before. Mm. Right. And and I like to tell them, well, well yeah, lot, yeah, it has been really, <laughs> but not by you. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And and I think we a writer has to gain confidence that that their voice is different and it will fall differently on other ears. You know, I, I like to use the example of self-help books. Right. All the self-help books really say the same exact thing, but they're all in very different ways. Um, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is very different from. Um, something like uh, the 12 secrets of creative women, right? So it's how it's written, the tone, the process. So one one writer will speak to you. You know, Stephen Covey may speak to me, but Marianne Williamson speaks to you. So it's all different, mm-hmm. right? So, so it's okay for all of those books to be in existence. Yeah. So I want to dive into your writing process and kind of what what that looks like for you, whether that be routines or habits that you have in anything like that? Mm-hmm. I tend to start with a sketch. You know, like I, I really do think of writing as an art. And sometimes um, I start with just a basic list of things. Okay, I know I want to, to, to write about X. I know I have to write an essay about X. What do I have to say about this? And I'll, I might start off with a list of, of you know, maybe three or four things. But here's the thing about essays. Essays are a discovery process, right? It's, it's not like with fiction. With fiction, I know that there's a story I want to tell and there are characters in the story and I liken it to um, planting seeds, right? So I have these characters, I've created these characters, I've given them voices and names and I know that there's a story I want to tell you about them. So. Um, I might even outline that and and tell you that story. So it's planting seeds. These characters may change, and I watch what's going to grow. With an essay, with nonfiction, that's like I'm digging. I'm digging, and I start off with these ideas, but I don't know what I'm going to find when I start getting in there. And sometimes what I find is surprising. Sometimes I, it's shocking to myself. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can be scary. But it's, uh, but it's a fascinating process, writing uh, that kind of nonfiction. And I can only say that, that, um, that I write it. And I write by hand, usually, when I start off. Um, and I write by hand, 
And I'm almost thinking about it as though I'm writing a letter to someone. And I'll write it, write, write, and then I'll type it in the computer, and then I'll print it out, and then I'll lay it out and look at it, and you know, make notes, handwritten notes, and look at it. Maybe I'll add things by hand as I'm writing in my notebook. Then I'll type all that in, and I'll print it out again. <laughs> it's just over and over again until I, I feel I've gotten somewhere with it, and it feels like a completed piece. Mm -hmm. Can you go back to what you were saying about you know coming in with your own uh, preconceived notions or your own preconceived ideas, and then as you're discovering, you know, as you're as you're researching, as you're looking through all that stuff, and things change, does an example come to mind of of a time to where that happened? Oh yeah, the example I I tend to use is um, an essay in my book, Love's Long Line. Uh, that's an essay collection, and there's an essay in that book called. A Fur for Annie Pearl. And when I wrote that, I was wanting to tell a story about an elderly woman, a friend of my father's that I met after my father died. And this woman was just wonderful. She lived in Ohio. And my mom said, Annie Pearl wants to see you. And I didn't know who Annie Pearl was. <laughs> but so I finally met this woman. And I adored her right away because she knew me, obviously, because she apparently my you know, father, you know, brought her, brought me to her when I was a baby. Like, and she told me these wonderful stories about my father. And I was just fascinated with her. And at one point when we first met, she said to me, you live in New York City, right? And I said, yes. And she said, can you get me one of them fur coats? But they have, and I knew exactly what she was talking about. I knew she probably watched the Jeffersons and she was thinking about Louise Jefferson. And I thought, I'm going to find this woman a fur coat. Right. And I, I start on this journey of, of going to um, thrift stores on the Upper East Side and looking for fur coats for this woman. And I thought that that's going to be a funny. I would love to tell the story because I, I was excited about that journey. OK, so but in writing it. I have to ask myself the question, why? Why was I so excited about this? Why did I have so much energy around finding this fur coat for this woman? And. Caleb, I started thinking about getting gifts for my mother and why I did not have the same excitement around getting gifts for my mother. <laughs> and my mother is someone who, you know, she's very childlike in certain ways and, and she's someone who wants her gifts, right? And you get her her gifts and then she will ask you, Christmas is over and her birthday's in January and she's already asking you what you're, <laughs> what you're getting her for her birthday in January. And, um, and I felt a, not only a kind of resentment, I realized I had a kind of resentment around that, but then it walked me to this place where I had to talk, think about one of my sisters. And my sister used to be her caregiver, and my sister died. And I realized that I was angry with my mother, and that I felt that that was a gift that just got thrown down a hole. And I hadn't even, I hadn't even articulated that to myself, that I was angry at my mother because of my sister's death, even though, you know, my sister's health, you know, it, it was just no way connected to her, but that's what I felt. And, and I let the essay take that turn. Mm -hmm. And I wrote about that in that essay. Mm -hmm. and it became something totally different. So that, that can happen. Yeah. That can happen. <laughs> What what gives you the courage to do that? Because I mean, you're you're 
it's it's one thing of you know letting letting an idea that you that you had preconceived notions and changing that, and then it's another thing to go, okay, the idea is the idea is changing, and it's something that is much more vulnerable than yeah. than I had imagined. I mean, how how do you do that? Oh goodness, just a night life. Nice light question. (laughs) You know, Caleb, it it didn't occur to me until, you know, you you just started formulating that question. It occurred to it just I was just thinking, it was like, wow, I guess I could have not written that essay like that. I could have just kept on going and writing the Annie Pearl story. (laughs) But no, um, that did not occur to me. Uh, And I think it's because I don't know, I I try not to be split. Right. I try not to be split in myself and in my thinking. I try to be, you know, this, what you see is what you get. And if this is what I'm thinking, then I'm, I'm going to put this on the page because this is who I am and this is, this is where I am. Um, and, and I can't even explain why I do that. I don't know, but I guess it's, it's because I'm trying to write what what feels truthful to me Mm -hmm. right and in that respect i'm i'm not going to hold back i guess Mm -hmm. you know um now it's not like i don't have boundaries Mm -hmm. right um a lot of people ask me about my husband and some people don't even realize that i'm (laughs) i'm married uh because i don't write about my marriage Mm -hmm. right and i don't necessarily, you know, if my husband wasn't there, you know, I, I don't bring him into a story. So that's a very specific boundary for me. Mm-hmm. But, but for me personally, you know, I, I have my story and stories that are mine to tell. Um, I am going to tell those stories and whether or not it's, um, it's going to be really hard then it's going to be hard, hard for me. And I think it's better to put it on the page than to hide it. Mm-hmm. Because who would I be hiding it from? Me. <laughs> right? yeah. That's not going to help me or anyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you, how do you determine and even what, like, how do you determine, okay, this is, this is good vulnerability that, that needs to be shared, that needs to be written about. Whereas um, this is just stuff like you were saying with your husband that, hey, I'm just not going to I'm just not going to write about that stuff. What does what does that decision making process look like for you? OK, that's the, you're actually asking two different things. OK, you know, a boundary is a boundary. So that's that. Yeah. But you're asking about vulnerability and when is something too vulnerable? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And the thing with that. It's a matter of. Where am I in in the process of the thing that I'm writing about? Do I understand and have a handle on this hard thing? Or am I still in it Mm -hmm. to the point where I can't see straight, not even to write about it, right? I feel that that you can do the reader a disservice if you're just throwing something on the page because it happened to you and and I'm going to put this out here. If you haven't processed it, processed it, process it, <laughs> you're going to actually put the reader through your trauma without bringing them out to the other side. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I feel that that's not right. Mm-hmm. That is simply not right. Um, 
I can say, um, and I think you you know this, um, I live in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, and my son was in the school that day when the shootings occurred and his godbrother died. Now, I can tell you that I I tried to write about that not long after it happened, and I couldn't. Right? I couldn't. I knew that writing was not where it needed to be. It was all over the place. Um, that initial writing helped me to preserve details that I might have forgotten later on, but it, it wasn't writing for publication. And it took me three years, I think, three years before I could write something coherent about Sandy Hook. So I would say that 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 to me, that's the, the line of, of vulnerability is how can I be able to to process it and talk about it without, you know, harming others, I guess would be the put the way to put it. Mm-hmm. Do you find that writing just to write writing, not for an audience, but for yourself just helps you process through some of that emotion and some of that grief as well? Yeah, and it just helps to to be able to look at, you know, what is here is what is right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I do journal, so it's not like an everyday thing, yeah. but, but several times a, a month, you know, I will sit down and think about what's happening with me, and and I will write it down. Um, I I will say though, uh, last year a very dear friend of mine died. Uh, my friend Katie died, and it after a long battle with cancer. And I knew very specifically, Caleb, it was a, a different feeling. I knew that I wanted to capture that grief immediately. I did write something right away. But I even uh, kind of signaled that in the piece, that this is a very specific grief. And I feel as though I've lost so much in losing her that I don't want to lose any piece of her, not even the fresh, raw grief. So I'm going to write about this right now. And knowing that down the road, I am going to write something else that's going to be longer and more um, thought out about, you know, the, the things that have come up for me since Katie has died. But um, but but yeah, sometimes writing is just about, for me, preserving very specific emotions and moments. Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you write with that type of emotion, whether it be stuff that you've already uh, processed through or what you were writing for Katie of just in the moment, because I think it's through that emotion, it's through that vulnerability that that's what resonates with people because they know I've, I've, I've felt that before. How, how do you write, how do you write that with that type of emotion? You know, I think for me, it, it comes from having written tons of letters. You know, I, I, I still write letters and I think Letter writing is what helped me to develop my voice. I do think I have a very specific voice that that is that is intimate and authentic. And when you write to someone, when you write to someone you care about, you don't hide things. You don't, you know, you if you're telling them about something that has made you happy or sad, you don't hold back. You know, you you put that on the page and you tell them because you want to share everything with them. And so I, so I, I feel that I kind of do that automatically in my writing because I'm so used to doing that in, in letters. And mm-hmm. I tend to still think of that even when I'm writing um, fiction, because I'm thinking, oh, I can't wait to tell so-and-so <laughs> this story. I'm, I'm, I'm going to write this and tell, you know, tell him, tell her this story. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. So uh, kind of going back to what we were talking about with 
uh, with your process as well. How, how do you decide whether this idea or this concept or this story that you want to write about is best suited for an essay and what is best suited for like, okay, this could actually be like an entire book. Mm. You know, it's funny. I have, um, I have more trouble with that discerning between short stories and novels because mm-hmm. one of my teachers said that, that, that my short stories could be novels because I just <laughs> tend to I have so much going on in my short stories. Um, but with essays, I, I don't seem to have that trouble because um, I don't know, maybe it's because I, I have a clear idea of, of the one thing that an essay can be about. Whereas with a book, I know that, you know, there are many things that I'm going to cover in a book, right? And so, um, so for example, uh, I, I just finished a book proposal having to do with um, Thomas Merton. And I, there's no, you know, I could write about, you know, one essay about, you know, what it's like to, to feel like I'm being mentored by Thomas Merton, or I can walk you through every single topic that I think about as you know, as I work through both my life and um, reading his journals. So that's a book, you know, mm-hmm. that's, you know, there's going to be just that, there's just a richness that that can be filled out in a book with that. Mm-hmm. What would you say are, and we've, we've already talked about some of them of figuring out what you need to say, but what, what are some other crucial skills that you would say it is, is really important for for authors, for writers to develop these, these skills, whenever it comes to writing. Uh, reading, mm-hmm. reading critically and reading for craft, right? So not just reading, and I had this with a student recently, you know, not just reading to say, oh, I liked this book or I didn't like this book. You know, that's not what it's about when, you, when you're a writer reading for craft. You know, um, this writer is doing the thing that you are trying to do in your essay. I, I was explaining this to, to the student, you know, she's using history in a way that you were trying to use history. So the question is, how did she do that? And what can you take away from that to, to bring to your own writing? So um, the, the wonderful thing is that, you know, you're trying to do something, but you're not necessarily the first to have done it. So you can find help. <laughs> you can find help and figure out how somebody else did it. And if you, if you can learn to read for craft, that makes your job as a writer so much easier. Um, I learned that almost, again, by accident very early on when I was working on my first novel, and I knew that this was going to be a novel that went back and forth between the present and the past. And I thought, well, how, how long can I stay? How, can I, how long can I get away with being in the past? And how does the present day storyline move through the novel um, efficiently without losing the reader or the tension? And I thought, well, what book do I know that does that really well? And I thought, oh, Pat Conroy's The Prince of Tides. That book does that. So I took that book and I made an outline. You know, I charted out how many chapters is he in the past? How many chapters is he in the present? What exactly happens in the past and in the present to move the story forward? So I could get a sense of of just how the book worked. And I actually used that for my initial template. I thought, okay, I'm going to do three chapters here, four chapters here, three here. And, and just, you know, just to give me a feel of the rhythm. And that got me started. Right. So, um, 
it didn't feel like I was, you know, messing around, mucking up something in the void. I felt like I had a structure to work with. And reading can can give that to you. A reading helps you to know what's possible with the language. And it also helps you to develop your ear for your own writing. Um, I have here, you know, I'm actually, I'm in my office here at home, and I have here, I keep here on the wall, um, the instructions from the poet Jane Kenyon. Have you ever heard of that? No. So um, she, the poet Jane Kenyon, who's, who's now passed away, but she has this wonderful list of things that writers should do. And one of the things on this list is read good books, have good sentences in your ears. Mm -hmm. Right. That's hugely important. And because I know you're curious, I'll give you what what else is on the list. Please do. She says, be a good steward to your gifts. Protect your time. Feed your inner life. Avoid too much noise. Be by yourself as often as you can. Walk. Take the phone off the hook. Work regular hours. That's it. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, what she's saying is honor the thing that you that you are here to do. You know, if you're going to be a writer, write. Honor your gift. Take the time to do it. Take the time to be thoughtful about it. Take the time to feed your creativity, to participate in your craft, to to be a literary citizen in, in terms of reading other writers' works and to know what's out there and what you're going to have to say to find a way of working. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also interested in learning about the way other artists work, right? I'm a big fan of Bruce Springsteen, you know, not only because of his music, but because of the way he works as an artist, right? And I, I read um, instances where he would talk about um, back when, you know, there were Tower Records, how he would go to Tower Records and just bring home handfuls of CDs of music of all kinds just so that he could see what is going on in his industry, right? what is the sound, what is going on, and then thinking about what, do, what does you know, Bruce thinking, what do I have to say in this conversation, right? You, you think about what is it that you want to create. Even now, I'm fascinated by the, the album. He has a new album that's coming out next month, mm-hmm. and it's based on you know, the Western pop sound of the 70s which I thought, oh my God, that's fascinating. And and I don't know if you've heard the first song called Hello Sunshine. It was like, mm-hmm. that sounds just like Gordon Lightfoot. How did he do that? Right? Mm-hmm. But he was inspired by that sound. And, and, and I'm also, you know, I've watched the Eagles, the documentary about the Eagles multiple times because that was a very specific sound and that creativity. Um, and also, I'm going a little bit all over the place, but in that documentary, um, Glenn Fry talks about when he used to live in this, you know, this awful little building above Jackson Brown. And he said he could hear Jackson Brown get up every morning, hear the tea kettle going off, and then hear Jackson Brown at the piano, you know, working the same piece over and over and over again. Then he'd hear the tea kettle go off and then he'd go get more tea and then he'd hear him. And then Glenn Fry said, I realized I was learning how to write a song. I, I was hearing how Jackson worked. That's how Jackson writes a song, right? So I'm fascinated by that because here's Glenn Fry understanding that there's a process to writing songs, right? He was mm-hmm. learning about exactly what you're asking me, about process, about creativity. And to hear him, I love hearing him talk about, you know, the 
developing the stories of his songs. He used that process to develop his own thing. And it's it's exciting. It's exciting because to me, that means that there's a way of working. It's not like you have to be stuck, right? There's like, oh, writer's block, or oh, I have nothing to write. No, mm-hmm. there, there are things all around you. You just have to learn how to lasso them in and wrestle them into something, right? Mm-hmm. But it's possible. Yeah. Are there any other uh, skills or any other advice um, that you would give about writing? Because well, I want to dive into a few pieces that you wrote and get uh, your specific take on some of those. But before we do that, um, is there any other advice that you would give uh, concerning the writing process or anything like that? Um, revision. To understand um, the process of revision and to not be afraid of it, because sometimes in revision, you have to throw out a ton of stuff and that's okay because that leaves room for the right stuff to come in. Mm -hmm. Um, It also means that you can fix whatever is wrong with a piece. Right. And um, sometimes some writers worry that, oh, this editor is going to come in and change things. That's not what editors do. Right. Editors are there to help clarify what it is that you're trying to do. And if you have a clear idea of that, then that's going to help them and help you articulate what that is. But you can't be afraid of the, the, the writing process, of the revision process, because if you have a clear vision of what it is that you're trying to do, then that process is only going to help, you know, polish it and really make it shine and get to do the thing that, that you want it to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, I lied. I have another question about the writing process. That's okay. <laughs> uh, so how how when it, whether it's through revision or whether it's through um, through criticism after a book that has come come out, how do you find yourself dealing with that criticism or even that could sometimes feel like rejection as well? Because that's something that that I that I can struggle with is that I can associate you know with what I've written or the things that I've created and it almost feel it can feel in a sense of like you're rejecting me. As a person, mm-hmm. like how how have you worked through that? You know, I'm I'm very much I once something's done, I let it go. Yeah, it's not really mine anymore. <laughs> it's out there, and I can't control how people read things. Mm. Right? Some people are going; they're just going to read things the way they read them, and I have no control over that. And if I try to have control over that, it would make me crazy. <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, that's how you saw it. Mm-hmm. Well. There you go. Okay. Yeah. You know, well, I'm sorry, but yeah. Have you, you go. Have you always been like that, or did, is that something that you've developed? I think it developed because of because I was a journalist for 15 years and working with really hard editors, right? And you can't take yeah. things personally. So, um, and also just being used to work being out there in a, a broad way because those were national magazines that I worked for. So just being used to stuff being out there and and yeah, sometimes things come back in, in a negative way, but, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, so as I mentioned, I want to get, uh, I want to ask you a couple of questions about some of the articles and work that you've done. And just as uh, just as I was researching, I saw that, you've co- that you co-authored, like, the first study identifying, like, Generation X. Yes. First of all, <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, how, like... Gen, Gen X is like something that I, I feel like most people are familiar with now, but it, in the time it was, it was something brand new. And so yeah. how, how did you handle something like, at least from my perspective, seems like honestly monumental of like this new research, this new study that is helping people learn about generations. Like how did you handle writing like that type of, that type of work, which is really going to shape 
you know, lots of other work going forward. Um, honestly, uh, David and I, David Gross is my uh, co-author on that. David and I uh, didn't think about that. You know, we didn't think in that way that, oh, we're writing something huge and groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. To us, we were just telling the story of, of if, I guess you could say, um, our people, our, our generation. We were just telling the story of, look, this is where we're at. And mm-hmm. I find that, I don't know, I'm, I've always been able to not be overwhelmed by big things. I bring it down to the personal um, very easily. So, so for example, um, when I was at, um, when I was, uh, when I went to Harvard and for a while I studied biology and, you know, there would be, um, my classmates would be like, you know, you, know, you could take a professor to lunch. And, and I, one day I walked in the dining hall with, I think someone like EO Wilson and, and my classmates were like, Oh my God, it's EO Wilson. And I'm like, he's my biology teacher. Right? <laughs> I'm like, it's just my biology teacher. So I'm, I'm, I, I don't know, for some reason, I've always, maybe it's coming from Lorraine, Ohio. I don't know. I'm always just bring things down to this is who we are. And, and also because I was at Harvard, I think uh, my classmates helped me see things on a bigger global scale. And, and to know that, that it's, the world isn't just out there, that it is part of us and we have agency in the world that we can speak about things um, on a big level because, the, because we are in the world. It's not this huge, big outside thing. This is who we are. This is our life, the nation, our politics. This is who we are. This is our life. So to me, you know, that story initially started off as, well, the people that I know, the people that I went to school with, this is not the way they are going about their lives, mm-hmm. right? This is, this must be something different. And then just starting off with that observation and then realizing that it wasn't just us, that, that people our age, um, to a large degree, thought the same way, that we were, um, and the title of this story was Proceeding with Caution, that we really wanted to do life well, and how do we figure out how to do that? So, um, so to me, again, it was like, I'm just telling a story, and this is, this is what we discovered. Mm-hmm. So, so did not expect it to, and it, you know, it grew, like we were just telling a story and it grew to a cover story and it just, you know, ballooned from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so another one of your essays, and you, you've already mentioned it as well as about Sandy Hook and it's called why I didn't go to the firehouse and we'll, and we'll link to all of this stuff in case anybody wants to check them out in our show notes as well. Uh, but I just didn't want to rush past that. I know we talked about it a little bit, but is there anything, um, anything else concerning that essay that you'd like to talk about? Well, just for the listeners, because they, they don't know what this essay is, yeah. um, Why I Didn't Go to the Firehouse is simply an essay about that morning, uh, the, the moments when I found out about the shooting. And, you know, everybody, all of the, the parents, when they found out, rushed to the firehouse, which is, you know, down the drive from the school. And that's where um, they were waiting to, you know, be reunited with their children. And, um, and I didn't go. And I had been asked about that, about why I didn't go. And when I decided, um, and I should say, Caleb, one of the ways I found of, that I could finally write about Sandy Hook, I realized that I was also kind of overwhelming myself because I thought I had to write this big Sandy Hook piece. Mm-hmm. But then I realized, no, I can just write about certain things. And that didn't seem so overwhelming. So 
let's let's just tackle this one question of why I didn't go to the firehouse. And and because in that question are a lot of things having to do with how I feel about myself as a mother, how I view my my son and his life, and how do I describe to you um, this this kind of promise that I made to him even before he, he was born, that I was going to be a certain kind of mother to him. And so that that essay was a way of of both explaining why I didn't go to the firehouse, but also of describing a certain kind of of motherhood that I feel that I that I live in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there any other um, essays or or books or and I mean I'm sure everything that you've written has has affected you to some degree, but is there um, any other essays or anything? like that, that has had um, like a really profound impact on you that you've written, such as why I didn't go to the firehouse? Well, um, all of the, the, the different Sandy Hook essays, um, there are three of them um, in my book, Love's Long Line. Mm-hmm. So one, one is um, simply about um, my son's grief and what I learned from him in watching him process his grief after the shootings, because he, I learned so much from him and I was just amazed and shocked by how he took hold of of his grief and, and lived it out and um and I wanted to write about that and um and then another essay um that kind of sparked the the others um which is simply about forgiveness mm-hmm. and the way that essay came about and and realizing that okay if I can write about this then I can write more about Sandy Hook mm-hmm. so um you know, sometimes I, Caleb, I find it interesting when I do manage to write about something that that is difficult to articulate, that um that I even worry how people will receive it because I you know are they going to think I'm callous or whatever, but um but I found that I don't know that that people relate to it. It resonates with people more than I realize. Um, there's an essay. There's a book that just came out in February called On Being Forty-ish. And it's a collection of essays. And um, my essay in that book is called, I Don't Have Time for This. Mm. And it's basically articulating how um, I don't take on a lot of the, the anxieties. Um, um, specifically, I talk about you know the days after um, the election of, of Donald Trump and, and so many people around me seem to be, were, were really floored by it and, and they get, you know, they they really like put their lives on hold, you know. Mm-hmm. And I basically felt like I don't I don't have time for this. Right? I have stuff to do. I have writing to do. I don't have time to be miserable. You know, is there something I need to do here? Then I will do it. Do I need mm-hmm. to go protest? Okay, I'll go do that. But I don't have time to just let this. You know. So um, that was. You know, I I felt. I wasn't sure how that was going to be received. And that essay was recently excerpted in Motherwell. And I'm just really surprised by all of the women who've been contacting me saying how they, they are trying to grasp something of that in their lives mm-hmm. and how about what's important to them and to live what's important to them. And so that's, that, that was amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, just as, uh, just as we're wrapping up and we always have a few questions that we love to ask, uh, every single one of our guests is—is is there anything uh, that we haven't talked about that you would like to talk about? 
Oh, goodness. Um, if you can manage it, if as a writer, have a good writing space. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's just a, a corner in your in your home. You know, I'm a big fan of those. Um, I, I still have the the secretary, like one of those antique secretaries where the, the top pulls down and it's a desk. And, and that was my space when I lived in, in Manhattan where um, this place, this desk was, was where I wrote. And I think it's important that you, you honor your work with the space. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, my husband and I, you know, think about sometimes, well, when, when our son goes off to college, will we leave this house? And I'm like, well, I'm like, I don't know if I could leave my office. And, and I have a library right there too. And my husband has a recording studio in the basement, so he has his working space too. And it's like, that would be the hard thing to leave. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, that we have this space. So if you can, as a writer, you know, have a space to work, you know, and honor that space where, where you can get to work, that's just a really cool thing. Mm-hmm. Well, a couple of questions that we'd love to ask everybody is, uh, what's one thing that is helping you either personally or professionally right now? What is one thing that is helping me? Music by Queen. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because, you know, I saw Bohemian Rhapsody, and number one, I'd forgotten how much I love that music. Mm-hmm. And number two, it made me, you know, really go learn more about Queen, about who they are, and to be, again, inspired by their creativity. And I and it made me realize how much I, I miss Freddie Mercury. And so there are there, you know, just, you know, just this morning, you know, I'll, I'll get up and I'll tell Alexa, you know, to play Don't Stop Me Now. And it's like, yes, stop. <laughs> and um, and it's it's exciting. And then and it's like I ride that energy and I think about Freddie Mercury, all of them. They were all they're all tremendously creative, talented, intelligent musicians. I loved the way they worked together. I loved the way they loved each other. And I just feel right now I'm I'm inspired by that by their creativity and the energy in that music. Mm-hmm. If you could have everyone learn one thing, what would it be? Have everyone learn one thing. I think it would be to listen mm-hmm. and to listen well. Mm-hmm. And, and not just listening in terms of, of spoken conversation, but, but also in reading. You know, one of the most um, striking writing students I had was an undergraduate student who who wasn't even supposed to be in my class. He, he, was a, he was actually an economics major who thought that the class was going to refill, fulfill a requirement, and, and it didn't. So he didn't have to stay in there, but, but he decided he wanted to stay. And he turned out to be um, not only an amazing writer, but he gave amazing feedback because for some reason he had a wonderful sense of what wasn't being said in the piece. Mm-hmm. And I think that was because of the care and attention that, that he gave, that, that he was listening on the page. He was listening to what that writer was saying and what wasn't being said. And I just thought that that was a, a tremendous ability. And I think that if you can do that, it opens the door to compassion. Mm-hmm. Right? Compassion is hugely important. Yeah. How do, you, how do you listen better while reading? Can you just say a little bit more about that? It's, it, it has to do with being with the writer on the page. 
-hmm. you know, because sometimes we're reading, it's sort of, you know how they say that sometimes you're listening, but you're not really listening. You're really thinking about what you're going to say in response. Uh, I think sometimes we read that way too, right? Mm -hmm. We're, we're like, even like talking in our heads, probably, you know, (laughs) like, oh, well, she thinks this and she's, and, and not really paying attention to, to what the person is saying on the page. And, um, and I think that, I think you do yourself a disservice, right? You're not giving yourself the chance to be changed by those words and also to to understand the, the person who is offering up something to you. Mm-hmm. If, uh, what advice would you give to someone who is eager to learn? <laughs> to be curious and, and just to follow that down, to follow if something if if you feel like you have kind of have like oh i think i feel like i'm getting obsessed about something that's okay go go follow that down because you you don't know what's going to come of it you know um like i said i you know i there was a point where i had like five different books on queen here in my office why i don't know but i was just really curious about them um same thing with the the ann lister woman you know it's like wow who is she what is her deal just I want to know who that woman is walking down the street like that, mm-hmm. you know, just just to follow it down because you don't know what you're going to learn or, or where that information is going to go. And it's some to me, it makes me feel alive. Right. That that feeling of, wow, there's still things to learn. And 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 as a student, as a writer, you're always going to start at the beginning. Anyway, you always have to start with that blank page. You always have to begin again. So why not go into it? with the curiosity of, of a child about to learn something new for the very first time, mm-hmm. right? I love being in that place. <laughs> Who are some of your favorite people to learn from, whether it be authors or speakers or podcasters or anything like that? Uh, I'm uh, right now in the, I'm really excited about the material of um, Thomas Merton, right? And so um, I've been reading through his journals and, um, just thinking about the way he worked through his faith and his life. So he's, um, he's really important to me. Um, I also, I'm, I'm looking at um, my book list here. I'm uh, reading, I'm working my way through the plays of August Wilson, mm-hmm. you know, his century cycle plays, because I get inspired by, you know, someone who, had a huge idea, who's working through something epic, right? And I, I like learning from someone who thinks big in that way. Um, I'm also paying attention to, you know, I watch sports, mm-hmm. right? And so I think about um, people like Tom Brady and LeBron James, how they think about their careers, but also how they care for their bodies. Um, so I, I learn a lot from from watching just how they process and how they prepare, you know, how they they you know go through um, how they go through life. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's it for right now. Yeah. And then finally, what are you learning right now? I am uh, in a, a program at Bay Path University um, in their uh, Masters of Higher Education. I'm actually earning a certificate in online teaching. Mm-hmm. So um, teaching has always been something that I've done by um, 
instinct. So it's um, really interesting to finally study pedagogy formally, and not only pedagogy, but but the all of the possibilities that online teaching offers to understand mm-hmm. the digital environment, how it is different from teaching face to face, and um, and how I can create a, a powerful learning environment to that inspires students to learn from each other. So that's what I'm learning right now, and it's been. Uh, it's been uh, so much work, but it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Well, Sophronia, I know that people are going to want to continue to learn from you and find your books. Where's the best place for them to go to do that? You know, I like for them to, you know, yes, anyone could go to Amazon, but really, I really encourage people to either go to independent bookstores and order them if they're not there, or um, on my website, I tend to have links to the publishers. Buy the book from the publisher directly, especially if it's a small press like Paraclete Press. Um, my essay collection is published by the Ohio State University Press. Because um, if you buy it from Amazon, you know that's they um, that's a cut of money that the publisher, the small press, doesn't get. But if you you know buy it directly from the publisher, it's much better for the press. Mm-hmm. So I, I tell people to do that. Go to the Ohio State University Press website. Go to Paraclete Press's website. Um, and, and buy the books there if you can. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the Learner's Corner today. Well, thank you for having me, Caleb. Caleb. I love that. That was an emotional conversation. Hey, tell us something that you got out of that, that, that interview. Yeah, uh, this isn't going to surprise you at all, Todd, but I think one of the things that really stood out to me um, was her just being really clear about, um, about her boundaries um, mm. especially of what she said. I mean, whenever you write about things that are so emotional in it, um, you have, you have to be clear about these are the things that I'm going to write about and deciding, yeah. okay, I'm ready to write about these things because she said that it's, it took her a long time to become ready to write about Sandy hook. And then also, you know, she has just decided as well to not, um, to not write about, um, her relationship with her husband as well. Mm. And so just Mm. clearly defining, you know, whenever it comes to the work of art that I create, whenever it comes to all of those things, this is going to, this is what's okay. And this is what's not okay Mm -hmm. as well. And so if I would highly recommend picking up any of her books as well, if you want to check her out as well, and you happen to be in Italy, she is going to be teaching a workshop there as well. And we'll link to all of that stuff um, in the show notes. If you want to connect with her further. amazing. Now, you are not going to want to miss our episode next week. And the best way to make sure you Who don't is miss it? our next episode is by what, Todd? You can hit the subscribe button. It is completely free, and you have the ability to do it. It doesn't cost you a thing. Matter of fact, it doesn't cost us a thing either. Apple Podcasts isn't charging you. Google Podcasts isn't charging you. Nobody's charging you, so go do it. It's the best way for you to not miss the episode. Yeah, and we are talking with Carmine Gallo. Uh-oh. Caleb, now, hmm. What does Carmine Gallo do? Well, he does a lot of different things. Mm. But I think one of the things that he's most well known for is just his his expertise in communication and coaching people and learning how to give great speeches. Um, because, I mean, that's one of the books that he's – I mean, he's analyzed TED Talks and all sorts of different people who have given – just incredible speeches and broken them down and learned how to become a great communicator. One of his more famous books that he's written is called Talk Like Ted, where, yeah, he goes through and talks about how um, 
He talks about how people give these these unbelievable TED Talks, and and talking with him was a total delight. I know Caleb and I, we both really enjoyed it. Um, really smart guy, and on top of that, just, just is so helpful, and that conversation was a lot of fun. Yep. So, again, you're not going to want to miss that conversation, so subscribe to the podcast, some of the podcast player you're using. Just go do it. Also, By the way, go, Caleb. Come on. Running over me here. <laughs> Also, want to let you know that uh, if you haven't had a chance to check out our Facebook group as well and join in our community of lifelong learners, we would encourage you to go head over there and you'll be able to find some great resources as well in case um, you're a lifelong learner like us and you want to continue to learn from things. We have some great resources over there as well. By the way, if we brought you value, if you listen to this podcast every week, which why wouldn't you, Caleb? I don't know. Um, but if you do that, one of the best ways you could provide us, um, with, with just a thank you or whatever would be if you leave us a rating and write a review, Hey, the review is great because it gives us feedback, helps us to know where we're at, what we can improve on, how we can help serve you better. And the rating simply is a selfish thing. We want you to give us a five-star rating. And the reason why is because it actually helps where we're placed within the Apple podcast directory, as well as the Google podcast directory and the whatever directory. It helps us. It's where the ratings happen and where we get put up the the charts. And and basically, I'm gunning for you, Drake. I want to be at the top of the charts because I just want that. Exactly. So subscribe to our podcast, leave a rating and write a review, and don't forget to join our Facebook group as well. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the Learner's Corner Podcast. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is not Caleb Mason. It is, in fact, Todd Hicksonball. And until next time. Keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.